Let us now read together from our confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 47. That's on page 556 of your new book of praise. There we find God's word summarized as follows. What is the first petition? Hallowed be your name. That is, grant us first of all that we may rightly know you and sanctify, glorify, and praise you in all your works in which shine forth your almighty power, wisdom, goodness, righteousness, mercy, and truth. Grant us also that we may so direct our whole life our thoughts, words, and actions, that your name is not blasphemed because of us, but always honored and praised. After the sermon, we will sing from Psalm 1, the stanzas 1, 2, and 3. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, when you hear the phrase, God is great, Does that fill you with fear? When the phrase is uttered by a fanatical terrorist, then it will certainly do that, won't it? For then you know that an act of terror is likely about to take place. We associate that phrase with terrorists who see themselves as instruments of God, of Allah, to sow terror upon the people. Now the question is, What do you think of when you hear the name of our God, the God of the Bible? What is your reaction to that name? Does the mention of God's name also fill you with fear? For some people that is the case. They are afraid of him. They think that he is a God who sees everything they do and that he is angry all the time. Others are indifferent about him, even amongst Christians. God's name does not fill them with fear, but with apathy. To speak about God and to use his name is really not such a big deal to them. Lord's Day 47, however, confronts us with the wonderful holiness of God's name. It tells us how significant his name truly is. And how wonderful it is that we can take that name upon our lips. It's not a name to avoid. As we will see this afternoon, the holiness of God's name says a lot lot about God and also a lot about us. For because he is holy, we too can be holy. That's what I will preach to you about this afternoon. I will preach to you about what God's holiness what God's holiness means for our holiness. First, we will look at his holiness, and secondly, our holiness. The first petition of the Lord's Prayer is, Hallowed be your name. What does that word hallowed mean? Well, it is an old Germanic word meaning to treat or to keep as sacred, holy. And once you realize what it means that you, as one of God's hallowed ones, one of God's saints, are to hallow God's name, then you will also realize what a great responsibility the Lord has given to you and to me. 
For God's name includes his reputation. Artists, once they are finished with their painting, will put their name on their work of art. If it is a painting, then somewhere in a small corner of the canvas, you will find his or her name, the name that he or she has been given at the time of his or her birth. But such an artist also has another name, and that's his reputation. Those who are familiar with art connoisseurs don't need to look for that name on the canvas. As soon as they study that painting, they will know who painted it, for they are familiar with the painter's methods and skill. Same thing is true of composers of music. If you are knowledgeable about composers, then you do not need to be told when you hear one of his pieces being played who the composer is. You can tell that from the music itself. For that composer has a certain reputation. You know him from his works. In that sense, we all have a second name, our reputation. If you are a businessman and you are honest and reliable and deliver a good product, then you will be known as an honest and reliable person, as a good person. That's your reputation. Then you have a good name. But if you are someone who delivers shoddy workmanship, someone who does not deliver a good product, or someone who is unreliable, then you have a bad name, a bad reputation. Now, none of us as human beings has a perfect reputation. There are always flaws in the things we do and say. But with God, that is totally different. For what do you think of when you think of God's name? Well, then you think of him as a holy God, as a perfect God. Holiness refers to separateness, to uniqueness and dedication. Holiness has to do especially with purity, something that is untouched by sin. That is what God is like. He is untouched by sin. He is absolutely pure. He is full of glory and majesty and brilliance. It is for that reason that we worship him. We look at all the attributes of God, such as his goodness, his righteousness, his power and his truthfulness, and we adore him for it. In all his works, he shows himself to be completely unique, it is for that reason that we stand in awe of that mighty and wonderful God. And it is in this way that we hallow his name. We worship him and glorify him in the things that we say and do. We praise him for who he is and for what he does. At least that is what we should be doing. That is what was done perfectly in paradise. God created Adam and Eve in order to magnify his greatness. And they did. They praised him in their deeds and words. When you saw Adam and Eve at work, you saw God at work, for they reflected him perfectly. They were the perfect image of the Father. Now we have lost that image. But that does not mean that we now no longer should not hallow him. Yes, we should. How do we do that? 
we come to the second point. As I said, to hallow God's name means to treat it as holy. We cannot bring any holiness to the name, for it is already holy. Nothing can be added to God, and nothing can be taken away from him. And therefore we have to see him as he truly is. We must rightly know him. And so the Catechism says, grant us, first of all, that we may rightly know you. If you do not know who God is, if you do not know about his majesty and about his glory and power, then you cannot hallow his name. How do you get such knowledge? Well, in the first place, God has to give that knowledge to you. And you know where and how he gives it to us, don't you? He gives it through his word, through the Bible. And for that reason, we must know the Bible. We have to read it, meditate on it. We must see how God has dealt with his people throughout the ages. God's word reveals his will. It shows his wisdom and his righteousness and his truth. It also shows his great mercy and compassion. But God also reveals his anger against those who willfully sin against him and who do not repent. And so God's word shows what he loves and what he hates. He loves himself and his creation. He hates sin and everything to do with sin. No doubt most of you study God's word regularly. You have your Bible beside your bed and in the kitchen drawer so that you can read God's word at bedtime and at mealtime. You regularly go to church where you hear God's word proclaimed and explained. Young people go to catechism classes and they go to a Christian school. Most of us go to study societies. In all these activities we learn more about God. But Don't think that just because you know and study his word, that then necessarily or automatically you know God. As if those who have an encyclopedic knowledge of the Bible and the confession always have a greater knowledge of God than those who do not. There are many brilliant theologians in this world who have written extensively about very complicated doctrines in the Bible. Yet they haven't a clue who God is. It may be that someone who can barely read or write may have a much greater knowledge about God than a learned theologian who can read the Bible in Hebrew and Greek and who has written many books and who has a PhD behind his name. He may know about God But it doesn't mean that he knows God. To really know God means to have an intimate relationship with him. It means to walk with him and to talk with him. How do you know the people that are close to you? I mean, how do you really know them? By knowing all kinds of facts about them? Do you really know someone and you know a lot of external facts about him or her? For example when he or she was born, when you know about certain milestones in his or her life, such as the time and place of his or her graduation, or when you know about all the kinds of jobs that she has held, 
or who his parents and siblings are, or what kind of car that he drives. Those things, they're all facts. It may be that you know all these things about that person, but that doesn't mean that you actually know that person as such. You may know about him or her. You may know a lot about him or her. However, such knowledge is only external knowledge. The question is, have you ever had meaningful contact with a person? Do you talk with that person on a regular basis? Have you gone through certain things together? For you can only truly know a person if you have regular and intimate contact with him or her. When you go through the triumphs and trials of life together. And you see, that's also the way it is with the Lord our God. We should not just know all kinds of facts about him, that he created the universe, that he chose Abraham as the father of many nations, that he sent his son in the flesh, that he dealt this way or that way with a certain person in the Bible. These things are all good to know, but just because you know those things doesn't mean that you know God. When do you truly know him? You know him when you allow God to take you by the hand and guide you through your life. You know him when you go through the heights and lows of life with him. When you allow God to be totally part of your life. When you call upon him in times of joy, when you reach a certain milestone, or when you share with God all the joys that life can bring, you also know him when you go through the troubles that life can bring you. Then you call upon his name. You trust in him. Then you talk to him about the things that bother you and that bring you down. And then you allow him to comfort you with his word and spirit. You also know him when you see his hand in creation. Now you acknowledge him as the one who made everything so beautiful and detailed and varied. You praise him for the fact that you will never grow tired of gazing upon and discovering the beauty and intricacy of his creation. You know him and you see in him the power of creation. When he whips up the waves of the ocean by the wind he blows... Or when he snaps large trees in half like matchsticks. When you hear his voice in the thunder and see his smile when the sun shines. You know him when you realize that he is the one who created the moon and the billions upon billions of stars. And then you stand in awe of his greatness. And you know him especially when you experience his wonderful mercy, his great love through his son, Jesus Christ. Through him, this world is renewed. Through him, God's Holy Spirit is sent so that all those who put their trust in him may be sanctified and redeemed and purified. You know him when you realize that he alone is the one who can forgive you your sins. That he alone can bring purpose to your life. You know him and you see the truth in his unchanging faithfulness. 
in the covenant promises that he fulfills in the lives of his children, in your own very life. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, do you know that God? I mean, just not just intellectually, but do you experience him in that way? Is that wonderful God a part of your life? As I said, you may be reading your Bible every day. You may go to church regularly and study and attend study societies and go to a Christian school or even teach there. You may be a minister or an elder or a deacon and always be busy with God's word. But that doesn't mean that you know him. How much is God part of your everyday life? Do you walk with him and talk with him? In Lord's Day 45, we learned that prayer is the most important part of our thankfulness. What must you and I be thankful for? For the fellowship that we may have with that great and awesome and holy God. In a few weeks, the Lord willing, we will celebrate the Lord's Supper. And then you may express that fellowship in the bread and the wine that we can eat and drink together. You may have a meal with God and with his children. It is an expression of the closeness that we may have with him. Do you know why you must hallow God's name? As the Catechism says, so that his name is not blasphemed. For it is either the one thing or the other. You either hallow his name or you blaspheme his name. There is no middle road. It is not so that you must only worship God with your lips. Your lips must reveal your actions. Don't say one thing and do another. If there is one thing that does damage to the cause of Christ, it is people who pray, hallowed be God's name, but whose lives show the opposite. They blaspheme him. At all times we have to examine ourselves, not just before we attend the Lord's Supper. Think about it. How often do you and I not bring shame to God's name? Each and every one of us is a representative of God. The opposite of hallowing God's name is blaspheming his name. To treat him as someone who can be ignored and tread upon. The people at your work and the people with whom you come into contact, they know who you are. At least they know whom you claim to be, a Christian. But if you lie and cheat and break God's commandments with impunity, then you turn people away from Christ that instead of drawing people to Christ, you repel them. Imagine you come before the judgment seat of God, and he asks you how you have drawn others to Christ. How will you answer? Think about that. How consistent are you in the way that you conduct yourself? Does your conduct match your confession? Do the people see a man or a woman who walks and talks with God? Do they see a holy person, a saint, someone washed in the blood of Christ? Of course, they will never see a perfect person, we're not. But they see a person who wants to 
lead a holy life. You young people, teenagers, how is that with you? How do you conduct yourself over against your parents, your siblings, your friends? Do you hallow God's name in the way that you treat others? Are you kind to your siblings, to your mom and dad? Are you kind to those people who are not so popular in school, for example? Or would you rather follow the crowd and pull up your nose at those who are different from you? And parents, how do you conduct yourself in your homes? Do your children see a reflection of God in the way that you behave? Are you patient and kind and compassionate with your children? Do they see a humble person, someone who craves the forgiveness from God because you realize what a sinful person you are? Why do we hallow hallow God's name? Because we were created for that very purpose, brothers and sisters. As a matter of fact, that was the sole purpose of creation. God made you and me so that we could praise his name. My wedding address a few days ago, I mentioned a first century philosopher by the name of Epictus who wrote, If I were a nightingale, I would do what is proper to a nightingale. If I were a swan, what is proper to a swan? In fact, I'm a spiritual being, so I must praise God. That is what you and I were created for, to praise God, to hallow his name. And in spite of our sins, we have to do that every day of our life. And if you do that now here in this life, then you will also be doing that into eternity. For then you will be surrounded by God's glory and majesty. You will see his full brilliance and his greatness. And you will experience his wonderful presence. And then you will not be able to help it, but praise his holy name to bring glory to that holy God. When you submit yourself to God and want to praise his holy name, even though you fail miserably in that regard, then his name is not a name to be afraid of. No, it's a name to take upon your lips. It is a name to flee to. For those who want to maintain his holiness and thereby their own holiness are welcome in his presence. He embraces them. And so, brothers and sisters, call upon that holy God. Maintain the holiness of God's name by praising him for the greatness of his glory that he wants to share with you. Amen.